0: Well, good morning to our brothers and sisters at Osterville Baptist Church and for others who may be joining us for this morning worship service. Uh, We're saying farewell to Habakkuk this morning as we come to Habakkuk chapter 3. In a recent communication uh, received from Pastor Rob, he reminded us that worship is central to all that we are and all that we do as a church. He referred to John Piper's quote in the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, when he wrote, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Worship abides forever. So deep and yet so very true. God is seeking worshipers. Now, as we come to Habakkuk chapter 3, I think one of the things that really comes out strong and clear is that Habakkuk is a man of worship. He came to realize that while he doesn't understand everything happening to him or what is happening around us, that we walk by faith trusting fully in the Lord and his sovereign and eternal plan. In chapter 1, we saw Habakkuk wrestling with God. In Habakkuk 2, he's waiting on God. But in chapter 3, he's worshiping God. In chapter 1, he was in the valley of despair, but he moved a little higher in chapter 2, where he's up on the watchtower. But when we come to chapter 3, it's as though he is viewing life from heaven's balcony. He started in the valley, but he ended up on the mountaintop. What explains the change? How do you move from anxiety to adoration, from worry to worship? Well, the first thing he did was this. Instead of concentrating and focusing on everything that was happening around him, which he never would fully understand, nor be able to answer the questions, why and how long, He shifted now his focus to what he did know and especially what he knew about God Almighty. The second lesson we learned last week is he learned what it meant that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. So Habakkuk has gone from anxiety to acceptance in chapter 2 to adoration in chapter 3. And that's the culmination whereby we see he utters a majestic prayer followed by a hymn of praise that he wrote. Habakkuk is engaged in three activities which forms our outline for this morning. First of all, he prays, then he ponders, and then he praises God. Notice, first of all, I say Habakkuk prays in verses one and two. The last chapter of Habakkuk, chapter three, is a prayerful response to what he has heard from the Lord but it is more than just his own personal prayer. It's intended as a psalm to be used in worship. So it has the character of prayer, and yet it also embodies Hebrew poetry where we see how Habakkuk learned to praise the Lord. Like so many of you musicians and artists, uh, this prayer is full of creativity. I've got to confess, I don't have a creative bone in my body but I sure do admire others who uh, know music and know poetry and know the arts. The very first verse of chapter 3 says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shiganoth. Now what in the world is Shiganoth? I doubt that any of you may know what it means, and I didn't. In fact, I'm still not sure. But it's associated with a song of deep feeling. And then it can also refer to the accompaniment of musical instruments. And this is confirmed in our text by two things. You'll notice that the very last phrase of the book says, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. So that gives one hint. And then secondly, the use of selah At the end of verses 3. 9 and 13. Selah appears 71 times in the book of Psalms, the hymn book of Israel. But it only appears uh, in one other book, and that would be Habakkuk, where it appears three times. Now when we see Selah, you're not supposed to even read the word. You simply come to it and you stop what you have been reading. It's as though God is saying, stop, meditate, reflect upon what I have just So Habakkuk is reflecting on the word of God, he's reflecting on the work of God, and yes, he's even reflecting on the wrath of Almighty God. So the Chaldeans are coming, uh, the Babylonians, against Judah for sure. How should the godly prepare for tribulation and calamity? Well, in chapter 3, verse 2, we read Habakkuk's prayer which glorifies God with a plea for grace as well. Habakkuk has a sober and healthy fear of the judgment of God. His prayer is twofold. There's a prayer of majesty and also a prayer of mercy. Notice with me first this prayer of majesty, because Habakkuk's attitude in his prayer is simply this. Lord God, there's so much about you and your greatness, that is so incomprehensible to me. I don't understand a lot of this, but I know a few things. I know that you're eternal, you're self-sufficient, you're holy, you're immutable, and you are a faithful God. So with that thought of the loftiness of God before him, in great humility, Habakkuk begins his prayer with these words in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you in your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, or we would say in our day and time, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Just how fearful was Habakkuk? Well, if you go a little further in the book to verse 16, we get a lesson in anatomy. Notice what Habakkuk says. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people, Babylon, who invade us. His heart trembled, his lips quivered, his bones weakened, and his legs wobbled. Today we might say, I was scared to death from the very top of my head to the soles of my feet. Why? Why? Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Habakkuk was troubled at what he heard, and he really believed the word of God with all of his heart, mind, and soul. Now he's caught in a dilemma, but notice he doesn't ask for deliverance or personal escape. But it's a prayer acknowledging God's majesty. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, and in the midst of the years make it known. Habakkuk desires an immediate fulfillment, which God already promised him back in chapter 1, verse 5. It's the lesson from experiencing God, if you ever studied that subject, of finding out which way God is moving and to move with him. Jesus says, my father works up to now and I work. I and my father are one. Now, we know he meant that in the sense of equality and deity. But with us, we, we want to know which way God is moving and move with him in his will for our lives. When you can look at the problems around you and in the world and say, God, all I want for my life, all I desire is your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and for your glory to be paramount to me, then you have arrived at the great place in your spiritual life. What a tremendous prayer, reflecting his view of God's majesty and his might. But notice the second part. There's a little prayer for mercy as well at the end of chapter uh, uh, 3, verse 2. So at the end of verse 2, Rebecca kind of, it's like you're writing a letter, you know how you've done that, and then you add a P.S. It's like a P.S. It's it's touching to the heart. He heard the word. He focused on the majesty of God. And now he adds a P.S. to God. What is it? In wrath, remember. Remember what? Remember mercy. That's so good. In chapter 2, Habakkuk opposed what God was going to do. Now he prays, Lord, keep your work going. Why? He knew the people of Judah needed it. The Babylonians would not annihilate the Jewish people, but they would be the Lord's instrument for his chastening. They wouldn't come and be condemned, but they would be corrected. And he wanted others also to see what God was doing, as we saw back in chapter 1. Habakkuk is saying, God, we have not one thing to say on our behalf. There is no way we can commend ourselves to you except, please, God, in your chastening and in your judgment, could you just add a little bit of mercy? And you know, that's always the way God operates, isn't it? He chastises, he disciplines, but there's always mercy. Remember the days of Noah when God said, I will blot out man whom I have created And he looked on the face of the earth and all he could see was wickedness. But then we read those little words, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We advance a few years to cities by the name of Sodom and Gomorrah, which God destroyed with sulfur and fire. But the Lord in his mercy remembered Abraham and sent Lot, his wife, and two daughters out of the city. One day there's going to be a great tribulation upon the earth. And a judgment like this world has never seen before. But in God's mercy, the church will be raptured before that awful, great and terrible day of the Lord and caught up to heaven. O oh Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Now, in point number two, Habakkuk looks back over the uh, history of God's people and he ponders the work of God. That's in verses 3 to 16. He's painting this sweeping, glorious picture of God as he praises God for what he's done. In verse 3, we see the transition where he goes from praying to pondering or meditating. He's meditating on God's glory, on God's greatness, and on God's goodness. If you were in a seminary classroom right now, the professor would tell you that this section of inspired poetry is a hymn of praise. And you know, sometimes God paints a picture for us rather than simply using words. Even like a few minutes ago when we had a piece of bread in our hand and we had a, a cup of grape juice in our hand, and it was a way that he said, this do in remembrance of me, the body that uh, suffered on that cross and bore our sins, and the cup that symbolizes the blood, for the, without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins. And such is that same case, that, that picturesque before us in verses 3 to 16. Now there's three stanzas uh, to, to this uh, praise with three verbs. And I've circled these in my Bible. In verse 3, God came. Then we see in verse 6, God stood. And then we see in verse 12, God marched. God came, God stood, God marched. First of all, God came, he came in glory, verses 3 to 5. There's so much here, we just don't have time to elaborate on the whole scope of things. But I hope you have your Bible open and you've been reading it from Habakkuk. He starts with a lesson on geography. Some people hate geography. I happen to love geography, especially biblical geography. Verses 3 to 5 say, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. That's way down south below the Sinai. And then you see that little word that we're not supposed to read. Selah, think about that. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him When pestilence and plague followed at his heels. The prophet likens God's splendor uh, to a sunrise. And just as the rays of sun streak across the morning sky, so rays of uh, of glorified light flashed from the hand of God. You know, people often illustrate a sun or a sunrise by drawing a circle, and then it's surrounded with lines protruding uh, from the circle. Sometimes we forget that the, the light and the warmth which uh, brings great blessing comes from a ball of fire that could consume the earth in a split second. God's radiance is both emanating and it's also concealing. It reveals his glory, but it veils his omnipotence, his power. Now Habakkuk here in this verses reflects on the captivity in Egypt for 430 years. And how God delivered Israel by the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. Now if I were to ask you as a believer today, what act in history is the most significant act of power that God ever did. I think most of you would agree with me that it would be Calvary and the resurrection as the primary demonstration. But the parting of the Red Sea is to the Jew what the resurrection and the cross means to us. As Israel commemorated the first Passover with the slaying of the Lamb and the crossing of the Red Sea. So we celebrate the fulfillment of that type, of that uh, historical prefigurement of the Passover. When we see John the Baptist looking at Jesus in the Jordan, he says what? Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. He then reminds us of the wilderness wanderings for 40 years, the defeat of many nations as the children of Israel possessed the land. He ponders the glory of God in holiness and power, integrated with mercy and grace, who is worthy of all of our praise. We love to rehearse the God's faithfulness to Israel in the Bible and read the accounts of his power. And you know something, we ought to also meditate and reflect on those special places, not only in biblical history, but even in our history, in our lives, certain places where God met with us and did something in a very special way. I guess it was about 15 years ago I was speaking uh, up in western Pennsylvania, the city of Indiana, Pennsylvania, And uh, Indiana is about 30 miles from Punxsutawney, where I went to high school. And after high school, I went into the United States Army for a few years. And after my tour in Germany, I came home and enrolled at Indiana State University in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And it was during that first year there that I was born again at the Baptist Church, the first Baptist Church at Punxsutawney. Well, I had a free afternoon in Indiana, and I was able to drive up to my old hometown, I went to see the new pastor, introduced myself, got a key and went into the church, and I just walked around and all I did was meditate and remember of of times really almost 60 70 years ago. And I just walked around. And then I went to the pew. It was the fifth pew if you're looking down from the pulpit it would be over on the right. Fifth pew back. And I remember that because at that time there was a song that was very popular among Christians called Five Rows Back. Johnny Hall sang it. You can YouTube it. It's a powerful song. It's about how a man comes to church and he sits in five rows back. And then the gospels preached. In this case it was a layman, a farmer. And he preached he must be born again. And that message finally got to my heart. And then the choir sang... Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. And I went forward and I publicly confessed the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. It was my spiritual beginning. It was a very emotional time. And you know, I never want to lose the wonder of it all. And going back to those important places in my spiritual journey where God touched my heart in a very powerful way. I hope you do the same. And even if you can't go there literally geographically, you can go there in your mind and remember the great things God has done. Well, I think Habakkuk found the same thing as he traveled through the ages of Israel. God came in glory. But secondly, God stood in greatness, verses 6 and 7. Now, we come to the second stanza of this hymn of praise, and we add, God stood. stood. Verses 6 and 7. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble on the east and the west side of the land. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath Anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. You see the figurative poetic language. Habakkuk is using. And somewhere these verses tells us that God controls all of human history. He raises up nations and he puts down. And so you have uh, you have the nations of uh, Assyria and Babylon and media Persian and Roman and the end time that the Antichrist will be over. And all along the way, God is in control. But through it all, he's preserving his people, the nation of Israel he makes the earth tremble, the mountains crumble, the hills bow low. The picture here is of God standing and getting his army ready to move. And when Israel marched, the other nations trembled. Why? They knew the omnipotent God was with his people were coming. And God says to them and he says to us today, fear not. Fear not. The God Almighty is standing near. Don't worry about what God may be doing. He knows what he's about. What he's about. God came in glory. God stood in greatness. And thirdly, notice, God marched. It says that God marched in goodness, as I'm calling point three in verses eight to 16. And here the main thought is God is fighting for his people. Whatever the enemy, God is ready. God is vigilant. God is watching. And we have this tremendous picture of God's defense of his people. In verse 10 again, the Red Sea and the Jordan River responded to the authority of God. The mountains you saw writhed; the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. Here with this Hebrew poetry, with the water piling up which is exactly what happened when, when they crossed the sea on dry land. You see, and some of you uh, have seen movies with it, where the water just keeps on rising as the Israelites tro- cross on dry land. So he's remembering all this history, and he's speaking of it in glorious, powerful terms. Then in verse 11, you have a reference to Joshua. The sun and moon stood in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flesh of your glittering spear. Joshua ten twelve we see Joshua says this, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Here in a very graphic term, he paints the picture of God's glittering judgments blasting out of heaven more brilliant than the moon and more spectacular than the sun. In verses 12 to 14, he lists the many ways that God has defeated his foes. Let me read the verses. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Once again, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You see, the motive of God's judgment was to crush evil, but also to deliver his people. One thing important here that just about every commentator misses, and I don't know why, but I have again circled another word in that verse up in verse 13, the word anointed. Did you know that word anointed is never used in the Old Testament anywhere for the nation of Israel? It is reserved to refer to the Messiah. Did you know the Hebrew word Messiah means the anointed one? And in the New Testament Greek, the word Christ means the same thing. It's the anointed one. So when the Greek translated the Hebrew, the Meshach, they translated it with the word Christos or Christ or Messiah, anointed one. And so by persuading the nation from Egypt and later on the Babylonian captivity and all through the centuries, we see that God was maintaining the line for the Messiah because in him all families of the earth will be blessed. In Revelation 12, you read about Satan who is called the dragon. And he has used every means available to kill the man-child who is Christ, brought forth by the woman in Revelation 12, who is the nation of Israel. That's why Satan hates the Jewish people. for She's the channel, not only the repository of the word of God and to be a witness to the world, but the seed of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And even Habakkuk recognizes God's purpose here. Well, you can see by the time you get to verse 15, Habakkuk is pretty well convinced that God is some kind of God. His power has been revealed on behalf of his chosen people, Israel and Egypt, at the Red Sea, at Mount Sinai, at the Jordan River, and in the conquest of Canaan. And it produced great fear and great awe in the heart of Habakkuk. Now pondering on these historical acts on behalf of his people brought great assurance to the prophet that he would provide a similar deliverance for Judah from Babylon. God's wrath will fall on Babylon. It did 539 BC. You can read it in your history books. But mercy also came upon Judah. So Habakkuk builds this poetic prayer to a tremendous crescendo as we come to the final verses of the book. You know, it's like sitting through the Messiah like Muriel and I did in Providence uh, back in December. And you're listening to possibly the finest music that's ever been written. It's incredible. And it's scriptural and it, it glorifies God. But you can feel it building to the crescendo when finally we get to that hallelujah chorus. And everyone in the auditorium stands up in reverence to God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Habakkuk is standing on solid ground again as he's been meditating on God's glory God's greatness and God's goodness. Now let's read verses 17 to 19, where it vividly demonstrates the worshipful and submissive heart of Habakkuk as he has learned what it means that the just shall live by faith. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yield no food, the flood be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. What a statement of praise and glory to God on behalf of Habakkuk. As he expresses, the just shall live by faith. So in his praises, notice three things with me in closing. Number one, he had a resting faith in verse 17. We're kind of back to where we left off last week, aren't we? The just shall live by faith. Now let me read verse 17, but this time I'm going to add just a few parenthetical thoughts with you that are on the screen before you as well. Though the fig tree should not blossom, this happens in the spring. Nor fruit beyond the vine, this happens in the summer. The produce of the olive fail. This happens in the fall. And the fields yield no food due to lack of winter rain. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. All these signify necessities of life, which when they fail will make a famine. Notice he speaks of of spring, summer, fall and winter all together. And everyone in a distressing case. Yet in the midst of this picturing what's going to happen after the Babylonians take them to captivity. And it seems like they have nothing left whatsoever. He expresses his walk of faith by saying, I will rejoice in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Habakkuk realized that inner peace and inner joy does not depend at all on what is happening around us, even COVID-19. There, I finally said the two words. Chuck Swindoll wrote, The bottom line of faith is not to silence all our doubts, but to make us sure of God. He had a resting faith. He also had a rejoicing faith. He said, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I don't know about you, but I immediately thought of the book of Philippians The book of Philippians, the key is not joy, as most say. The key is the mind. And if you have the right mind and you're thinking on Christ and you're thinking on God, then joy is a byproduct of that. But when you come to the fourth chapter, you see rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Be anxious for nothing. Let your moderation be made known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Ah, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things, things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. These do and the God of peace will be with you. How wonderful. You can know the peace of God and you can know the God of peace who's with you. Then we think of Romans 8.28, I reckon that this uh, sufferings well, that's Romans 8.18, but Romans 8.28, I reckon that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 doesn't say we will see all things working together for good. It doesn't say we're going to feel all things working together for good. It says, I know it because why? God said so, and I will rejoice in God as I trust him. He had a resting faith, a rejoicing faith, and now we see he has a relying faith. Verse 19. What does it mean to walk in high places? Well, it probably comes from Deuteronomy thirty-two thirteen. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Deuteronomy 32 is a chapter of what we've been talking about, how God led Israel from victory to victory. And when you're on the high places, that's although you're living in victory and praising God. You're walking by faith. You live in heavenly places and you're claiming your territory. Your name's written down in heaven. Our Father's in heaven. Our home is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our treasures are in heaven. Our hope is in heaven. Our Savior's in heaven. Everything that we know important is in heaven. And we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Habakkuk tells us to rely on God. And he says, keep climbing higher and higher. It's been many years, but I remember singing years ago. I guess I'm showing my age again. I'm pressing on the outward way. New heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on canaan's table land a higher plane than i have found lord plant my feet on higher ground and on that journey we get a little bit of taste of honey out of the rock oh my brother do you know the savior who is wondrous kind and true he's the rock of your salvation there's honey in the rock for you oh there's honey in the rock my brother There's honey in the rock for you. Leave your sins for the blood to cover. There's honey in the rock for you. Oh, the perfect and passionate love we find in this particular passage and the sweetness in the spirit of Habakkuk, whom we have grown to love. His problems were basically solved, not because he understood everything, but because he was deeper in his walk of faith and he knew his God and he put his trust in him. And he could say, I don't know all that's going to happen, but I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvations. His circumstances caused him to shake, but his relationship to God was absolutely unshakable. Indeed, he started out with anxiety, moved a little bit to acceptance, but he ends with adoration. We've gone from worry to worship. I hope that's true of you today as well. Two final thoughts and we're done. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, remember my brother, my sister, my friend, there's honey in the rock for you. He reaches out to you with outstretched arms. He longs to forgive you. He longs to give you the gift of eternal life and welcome you into the family of God. Trust him as your Savior today. And if you know the Lord Jesus as Savior, let me... Remind you again, we're pressing on the upward way. Like Caleb at the age of 85, oh God, give me this mountain. Please let us know if we can serve you or your family in any way. That's why we're here at Osterville Baptist Church and we could have no greater joy than to serve you and to minister to you. Thank you for joining us this morning. God bless you. And have a wonderful Lord's Day. Amen.